she said that being in a startup is the best day you've had and the worst day you've ever had every day at the same time. <laughs> and I just thought that was, you know, and, and here, here I am doing it again. You know, I, I, you don't stop. I mean, no. you know, knowing that and being in it again. Welcome to the Founders Journey Podcast. I'm Greg Moran. I'm Peter Dean. We're founders who struggle the same way every other founder does. Our goal is to let founders tell their own stories, the successes and the setbacks, the good stuff and the not so good stuff, sharing what it means to go on this entrepreneurial journey. This is part inspiration, part knowledge and learnings from everyday founders to make your journey a bit easier. All right, and welcome back to the Founders Journey podcast. I have a really fun one in store today with Jeff Olson. Peter, you've known Jeff for a long time. Why don't you, uh, why don't you do the honors here? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I've known him for a long time. We live in the same community and we're entrepreneurs in the community. So we've crossed paths a bunch of times. Uh, recently talked, told him about the founder's journey, and I said he'd be a perfect person to come on. He's very humble about his background, as you'll learn. We'll have to dig some stuff out of him. The coolest part about it is we have a lot of tech founders that we bring on. Not all, obviously. Our last guest wasn't. He has a really cool story, and I can't wait to have you guys hear it share some of the stuff and, and learn some more from him too. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll tease it like this. He's the head of the, uh, he's the head of, uh, the big bike. I don't know if you'd call it mafia or the big bike industrial, <laughs> the big bike complex, the big bike complex yes. in the U S so he's, he's actually an insidious, insidious human being for the things that he's done on like a, on the U S level. So, uh, so Jeff Olson, welcome. Uh, he's infamous. Welcome to, yeah. uh, that's right. Welcome to the founder's journey podcast, Jeff. I know we're, we're joking around, but he also, Jeff, is best known probably as being the founder of City Bike. If you haven't seen City Bike, you probably haven't been uh, in any big city in the United States in a long time. So, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Great, Pete. Great to be here. And I'll start off saying co-founder. Uh, you know, we have uh, a partnership that created uh, Alta Bike Share, which launched Bike Share, as most of North America knows it at this point in time. We, uh, Our first city was Melbourne, Australia, followed by D.C., Boston, Chattanooga, Chicago, Columbus, San Francisco, Seattle, you know, and others went through that uh, wild ride as it was uh, for five years and 30 million trips uh, with zero fatalities and uh, sold the company after that. It's now owned by Lyft. So Alta Bike Share is the company name. Yes. But I think people like people listening are probably going to know it by City Bike, right? Like that's, and what's honestly, like, what's the tie there? that's literally how my mother knows what I did in my life. You know, that's the the iconic thing that everybody refers to. And it's honestly, I have a lot of other things that I've worked on over the years. And yet that's the one that captured people's imaginations. It was a tremendous success for really all involved. And it, I mean, Capital Bike Share in Washington, DC was our first and was actually up and running before City Bike. But uh, everybody talks about New York. Great credit to all the people involved to help make that happen. It really was uh, an extraordinary success. All the founders that we have on have, have all have Super interesting stories, but I got to say, you know, and getting to know you and, and talking about your story as we go. And, and I think people that are listening right now are going to be blown away by, I mean, at one point, uh, well, I don't want to tease it too far, but at one point uh, you ended up in the middle, you ended up middle of quite the controversy and ended up with John Stewart having to basically yes. come to your defense. So we'll talk about that. We'll actually play a clip. We won't see it on the podcast, but we'll play We'll incorporate a clip of this into the podcast as well. So take us back yeah. to the beginning, Jeff. How did you... Sure. Uh, Alta, Alta Bike Share. I mean, like Peter said, we have a lot of people that like, hey, I'm going to start a SaaS software company or I'm going to start this, you know, fintech or whatever. And you said, I want to basically start renting bikes to people. Like, yeah, actually, my my partner, Michael Jones, gets credit for having uh, the initial idea. Uh, we we're six partners sitting in a condo at the Paribas Open Tennis Tournament in Palm Springs. Three of us are big tennis fans. And we thought the biggest thing we'd ever do, you know, we had a design company called Alta Planning and Design. It taken us more than a decade to grow that to 100 people, did projects on every continent except Antarctica. Uh, we did projects in every state in the country. We uh, just fantastic work with, with all kinds of communities and really great stuff. The Razorback Greenway in Arkansas, iconic project. We worked on bike master plans for most of the major cities. Jackson Hole Pathways, another one of my favorites. And we were doing fine, right? And we thought the most successful thing to represent that success was to finally go to see Rafa Nadal play in person. That was my, my business partner, Mia Burke's dream. And we go to California. We ended up, my, my business partner, George, ended up doing a massive project in the Coachella Valley, 
that came out of some of those early uh, times out there. Michael says on the list of, I don't know, 20 things we're supposed to be dealing with at our partners meeting, we should start a bike share company. Paris has done this. Uh, Barcelona did it. Now Montreal has done it. And no one else has. We, we should start a separate company. And you know, if we're looking at the length of the agenda, and we know the match is coming up soon and kind of in a hurry. It's like, all right, yeah, just have the lawyer set that up. And, and sure, you know, we're going to start a bike company, bike share company, which none of us had any experience doing. But as Michael said, neither does anybody else. And we had the contacts and the background, and we'd worked in so many cities and so many communities that we thought that we could hire some smart people and make it happen. And just a few months later, we won the bid for Melbourne, Australia, the first of the bike share projects we got involved in. Since we'd done that, we were successful enough to win the bid for Washington, D.C., uh, which became a regionalized project with Virginia, Maryland, and the nation's capital. It went from there. I mean, it just got bigger and better. If you want me, I'll tie you right into the John Stewart part of the story, and then you can just ask questions. Yeah. Of course, nothing goes quite as smoothly as you want. And at that point in my life, you know, the personal side of the story for me, we've got our design company, which you know, I'm still actively at that point a principal in. We've got this new thing that I'm actively a principal in. By the way, as a hobby project, I taught urban planning at State University of New York at Albany for more than 20 years. That's going on in parallel as well. So I'm still teaching a class, uh, the first of its kind in bicycle and pedestrian transportation with ended up more than a thousand alumni came out of that program. I hope many of you are listening right now. Some of the best and brightest out there. We get through the, those first series of cities. Everything works great. We're buying bikes and stations from a company called Public Bike Share, a company in Montreal, nicknamed Bixie for those of you who've spent time in Montreal. Pioneering system that was solar powered, Wi-Fi enabled, stations can be picked up and moved. Really great technology. And that's what we're using. So the other cities are working fine. We go to launch in New York. And it turns out the software that operates the system has been swapped out by the folks in Montreal without telling us. We have no idea that this has happened. Our staff starts to, you know, literally take stuff out of boxes and turn it on and nothing works. Houston, we've got a problem. And it turned out that they had been court ordered to privatize uh, their operations. They were initially started by the Montreal Parking Authority, which made solar powered parking meters, and then matched up with the idea of bike share from Paris, obviously the connection between uh, French Canada and France. They didn't have the ability to actually sell that product internationally, let alone to us in the cities we were already in, and they had to create a new entity. Well, the first thing they did was fire the people that had written their software. So they got rid of the folks who actually wrote the operating code, brought in a team internally so that as they privatized, they thought they'd have more control. But as anyone who's written code would probably tell you, that doesn't always work. I don't think Steve Jobs would have done that with the iPhone team, you know, early on in their success. So very quickly, you know, we have this massive problem. Now the system that we're about to deploy that we've bought and paid for, it doesn't actually work. The city gives us a slight reprieve and says, you've got six months, figure this out. You're going to launch in October. And there's this great warehouse at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and you can do a test site there. We're going to set up stations. We're going to get all these things to work. Well, if you know New York City in those years, you'll know that there was a major event that happened October of 2012, Superstorm Sandy, which hit the Brooklyn Navy Yard with all of our equipment in this big warehouse with I don't know how many feet of seawater, destroyed all of it. So massive losses, all kinds of, it's hard to even talk about. Uh, as my son would later say, Dad, there were some weeks where we knew we couldn't talk to you. That was one of them. Yeah. First of all, we shouldn't have even been there. The, the delay that put us there wasn't caused by us. Now we get hit by a hurricane, literally crawl out of that mess. We get six more months. We're going to launch in May the following year. And we actually managed the insurance company, didn't pay us. We had more problems than any you know, hundred businesses combined. Meanwhile, we're still running our other cities. We're still running our design company. You know, all this other stuff is still trying to go on and we're dealing with these massive problems under tremendous pressure because it's New York. This isn't like, you, know, you just can't get away with it not working. It has to work. So we finally get to the point where we launch this thing in May, and it's an amazing event. The mayor and David Byrne and all these other, it's just a fantastic thing. But there's still all these problems going on. There's still dozens of software failures happening. There's still, but you know, we got to get this thing off the ground. So as we launch, lots and lots of controversy about City Bike. It's like the Monty Python skit, the argument clinic. You know, I'd like to complain. Everybody's going to complain about something no matter what you do. Can't possibly just do a good thing. And especially after all we've been through, we thought we had, you know, and in that first week, we get attacked by the editor of the Wall Street Journal, a woman by the name of Dorothy Rabinowitz, who goes on the Wall Street Journal's own TV channel and launches into this tirade about bike share. It's your quote before about, 
you know, we are the all powerful bike lobby. We are a tyrant. Bloomberg is a tyrant taking over New York City that, you know, just every conceivable wrong thing about what we're doing. And, you know, honestly, as a small business, you reach a point where you think maybe it's over. You know, that may have been the last straw. I'm not sure we can sustain another bit of damage here. The Wall Street Journal has tore us apart. And then John Stewart completely virally picks up on the story and just turns it completely inside out and uses comedy to make all those problems seem like, you know, it's just a bunch of bikes. You know, why, why is anybody, what don't we like about this? This is going to do all these great things. Do not ask me to enter the mind of the totalitarians running this government of the city. This means something much more than the specifics of this dreadful program. It means envision what happens when you get a government that is run by an autocratic mayor or other leader and a government before which you are helpless. Bikes, lady. <laughs> Slow down, lady Hunger Games. Or should I say, Pulitzer Prize winning editorial board member of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> Am I missing something here? What group are you suggesting is conspiring to crush the will of the people? The bike lobby is an all-powerful enterprise. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, big wheel. So the good news, the Wall Street Journal is finally recognizing the corrosive effect of lobbying. The bad news, it's the bike lobby. Come on! And, and I, if Jon Stewart ever hears this podcast, John, I, all I can say is from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. You saved us. The next day, DiCaprio is out on a bike. And pretty soon after that, J-Lo is out on one. And then we, we ended up in movies. We had all kinds of opening scenes of Annie featured the city bikes on them, Sharknado 2. You know, it's just incredible run of uh, from total disaster, from all the things that have gone horribly, horribly wrong. And then a year later, we sell the company. I mean, it's just end to end. You know, <laughs> it's just uh... Jeff tipped us off. Like, and I, I'd known Jeff before, but he never, I never heard this story until. Yeah. Well, we don't tell it much. Honestly, my partners and I at the time had all agreed that, you know, what happens, happens. Uh, as long as the check doesn't bounce at the end of the deal, you know, we, we're all happy about the way it all worked out. And, and it really didn't need to be yeah. made public in that way. And, and now it's the 10th anniversary this week. So it's a pretty exciting time to kind of look back and tell the story. City Bike is now the 25th, just New York City City Bike. If you don't count all yeah. the other uh, bike shares that were in that system. City Bike is now the 25th largest transit system in the United States. Just the yeah. bikes. I saw this. There's all, all different press going on during that time that you're talking about. You have to tell us what it felt like because the pressure, there's political pressure that you're like, that's not why I'm doing this, right? There's like this woman talking to this news person, which is not the Wall Street Journal, saying like, what's well, taking up a parking space and I won't be able to park here. And it was like, what is going on? Like, it, it was like this upheaval of like, why do we need bikes? And and I think part of that fueled John Stewart's like, really this is this is what we're talking about and that, that was kind of his tone but you'll get a chance to take a look at it but like i can't imagine you know you're under enough pressure and then to have all of that going on at the same time especially with you know sandy and the damage that was done yeah i mean i think it's particularly hard and i'll speak on behalf of my group of partners that we never really got credit for overcoming those problems we were blamed for all of it you know and obviously the saw the software failure was a supplier that was a completely unpredictable problem that everything else we had done with them up until that point. In fact, most of the original equipment that was launched in D.C. and Boston is still working. If you go to those cities, you'll still see the original stuff. It still works fine. You know, obviously, they've since long since upgraded and fixed the software problem. But you know, we didn't cause that. But again, you're the prime contract. They're your subcontractor. It's your problem, right? The delay and the losses incurred by that and then to have to get hit by I mean, of all things, the, the biggest storm to hit New York City in yeah. known memory, just a disaster beyond proportions. We, we're very thankful we did not have any employees injured. We made sure people were safe and got out in time. I was in New York on Thursday before that, and we, you know, we were asked to you know, get out. 
So I think on that level, you feel like you've weathered this incredible crisis, and yet you're still under not only the same pressure, but more. And the sort of pile-on effect of these guys are ruining New York. We are doing a horrible thing. We have failed. The bankruptcy that later followed of our supplier, because they did eventually go bankrupt, was something that we were twice, in both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, referred to our company as bankrupt, twice. And you know, I still have people to this day, how'd you survive your bankruptcy? Like, we were never bankrupt. That wasn't <laughs> us. That was a different company. You know, and, and you know, at some point, you just learn that you take these things in stride. You find some way in the rest of your life to make sure that you go to your kids' soccer practices. You go to yeah. the concert at school. You, know, you find something that you can you know, continue to do, whether you get out and ride your own bike or you know, you know, spend time with other things that matter because the rest of this will tear you apart. You know, I think the best analogy for how the media felt was, I'm a Giants fan, for those of you out there, and I now know how Eli Manning felt Absolutely. every Monday morning. I, I, you know, was... it's just, you just won two Super Bowls and they're saying you're not, you're not good enough for the Hall of Fame. I mean, what else can you possibly yeah, you stole do? Some you know? my commentary. Uh... My commentary is going to be, this is what a quarterback in New York feels like every day. They're like, yeah. the scrutiny is... It's not even a lot of it's not founded. It's based on some little thing or something that doesn't have really bearing on the fact that, you know, Eli Manning won a Super Bowl. Like, even though everyone's like, oh, he's so right. bad. He's the worst quarterback. Like, what? You guys won a Super Bowl. I'm a I'll Bills take that any day. We have zero. We have zero Super Bowls. <laughs> but, you know, when it flips the other way, though, and it did in our favor, it's equally great. And And to be honest, to have. Paul McCartney gave us a shout out on Saturday Night Live. I mean, that's, I don't think life can pass, professional life, I don't think it gets better than that. I, you get moments like that, that, they're one in a billion. The chances of something like that occurring are so slim. The pure joy of seeing that happen and to be in, every, in all the cities we're in, it was the same feeling in Chicago, anywhere you go and you see that, and you still see it to this day. It's a decade later, it's all still there. It's become as iconic as the subway or taxi cabs or the sports teams. And, and that just, every time a friend of mine's kid, who, many of whom are now old enough to be living and working in those cities, they'll send their parent, hey, this is what I was doing today. And it's a picture of them on one of our bikes. And it's just, they don't know that that's coming, that I'm going to see that through their parent. It's like, oh, look, this is what my kid is doing today. And it's just, it never fails to make me smile that's every awesome. single time. Walk back a little bit, right? I mean, because the end of the story is unbelievable and you guys, you know, huge, you know, successful run and everything. But you had hit on a couple of things. You are in the middle at one point. Now, you know, this is probably a couple of years before you you end up exiting. You are in the middle of a political firestorm. You are ending up on, you know, all over the media in really bad ways. You get hit by Superstorm Sandy that destroys all your equipment. Your vendor goes your primary vendor ends up going under at that point they had just collapsed right all of these things are happening yet you know i'd love you to just talk about how did you make it through that period right like what was it because you said there were a lot of days where you you and your partner said that's it the easy answer is an extraordinary team of people not only the six of us that were the co-founders and partners every single person that that was part of our team and there were literally hundreds the managers of each of the cities the the people on the ground who, who had to very often put up with incredibly difficult situations on, physically on the ground with all kinds of stuff that went on, all felt that sense of mission and all delivered uh, against tremendous odds. And I, I think if there's one thing as I look back, you know, this 10th anniversary and some of the coverage that it's gotten is I would love to have had more of the frontline people who really took that directly, even more so than we did as the owners of the company get more of the credit, you know, and, and I think that that's a, it's a difficult thing. Companies get big and of course, you know, certain people get, get more credit. By the way, we're perfectly happy that most of that credit went as it should have to the sponsors, to the cities, to the leadership who took that on. You know, I've always said there's three stages to every major good idea. There's total opposition, grudging acceptance by the opposition, and the opposition claims it was their idea in the first place. And if you get to that last step, honestly, it should never matter for us to get the credit. You know, your comment earlier about the company was Alta Bike Share. We made sure that our brand was not necessarily known to the public. What we wanted is those sponsors, whether it was New Balance in Boston or Ford in San Francisco, obviously Citibank in New York, to be front and center 
Citibank claimed that bike share was the greatest marketing spend in the history of marketing. Uh, they said that, I believe, in, in Business Week at the time. Initially, a $42 million commitment that's grown to more than 100 you know, they got, I hate to say this to the Mets fans, but I think they got a better deal out of us than they did out of City Field. It was a lot <laughs> less money. So, you know, that I think is really part of what got us through is that it was such a, and team isn't even the right word. It was an orchestra. It was a, it was a lot of chaos. And yet it was a lot of people that all believed in what they were doing. And many of them who've never gotten the thanks that they deserve. Um, I'll say it right now. Thank you. So Jeff, I have a question. Like, is it the... So you said it was the people. What was the what was the mission? Like as a cyclist, like obviously, you know, Greg is too. We we ride and you have this affinity as a cyclist to bikes and bikes being accessible. And like one of my favorite cities right now is London because it's so intensely bike oriented and it's so cool to see that happen. But like, what was that mission? How'd you build it to create that environment that made it kind of unstoppable when it saw so much adversity. Well, and it's unstoppable in year 30, the first 29 years you're pushing a rock up a hill, right? Um, you know, all of us as, as partners had that common mission and we came into doing this at a time when not a lot of other people did. Uh, Alta was one of the first consulting companies anywhere to do this kind of work. And our belief was that whether it was bicycling, walking, or any other form of active transportation or non-motorized transportation, was a good thing. Climate change, equity, uh, all the issues that we face in society are all addressed by something as simple as going for a walk or riding your bike. And yet those things were inherently unsafe in many cities, you know, absolutely dangerous in many places. Those of us that uh, remember the New York City of the 1970s, uh, you know, for all kinds of reasons, not a safe place to even be walking around. So we all, that was what made us work. That's what we were driven to uh, in our professional careers was to to try to change that, to make that better. And I think that's what drew people to the company. You know, when Michael first started it, I know when he when he approached me to, to join in, I was like, yeah, great. There's a company that does this. This is a really exciting thing. And all of us felt that. And I think that was the the culture that we that we tried to build throughout the company. And it was the motivating factor for most of our people. It, it's a little different though. You get into the business side of things and it's all about, you know, bottom line dollars and cents. And, you know, if I look at how even bike share got run after we had left the company, and I, I still get calls from people, no matter what city they're in, like, well, how come there aren't bikes at the docks? How come as we get to electrics now, and we'll talk more about that, you know, somebody just sent me a video of a whole row of the new e-bikes all with the red lights on because their batteries are dead. Like, why are they letting that happen? And I know how difficult it is to do that. And those operations are a real challenge in big cities. But at times it feels like there's somebody who's in this now who's got a different motivation, who feels comfortable that, well, at least the, the advertisement part is paying for it and we don't necessarily have to get as many people to ride. That's not our mission. And I think that's a, that's a difference in, in how things have evolved. But we were, it was the mission that drove all of us. When you started that, Jeff, you, is it fair to say you guys at no point ever, there was never really a conversation where you guys sat down as partners and said, hey, our, what we actually are going to go out and do is provide this really unique branding experiment, you know, this really unique branding opportunity for these, you know, for Citibank and for all these other large companies. Th this was not really about that. That's just kind of what occurred to support this mission. Is that a fair statement? It wasn't, it wasn't. I and mean, if you look at Paris, the, the first big system, which was Vélib in Paris, was run by J.C. Deco, the advertising company, because they wanted to get advertising space in central Paris, which there was no other way to get. And in exchange for that advertisement space, they paid for and ran the bike share in Paris originally. So that idea was there. But our mission was, if we can somehow translate that into all these cities you're working in, and it becomes a, a catalyst for getting more to happen whether that was infrastructure, because you couldn't have the success that we had with Alta Bike Share was directly tied to the work that we did with Alta Planning and Design. And that every place that we worked, every city, every community, every college campus, all the people that did all that work to make the infrastructure better and safer was a precursor. Like those things happened in tandem to each other. So yes, there were definitely business angles that were coming in that were changing the way we were doing it. But honestly, if somebody had told us that Citibank was going to come to us 
with $42 million for a bike project. I can tell you, I worked a lot of decades before I worked on my first million dollar project. I worked many, many years before the first $10 million project happened. I've since worked on, on the Empire State Trail here in New York, uh, which was a fantastic success over the last bunch of years, was $300 million, 750 miles. We've got that done now. The first billion dollar project is not far away. We need the infrastructure. We need these investments. So I think each of those times that the model gets moved up a notch, you know, we get a little closer to starting to make the scale of change that we have to. And you, know, you nest this into the issues of the day with, with all the problems we're dealing with. At least this is something that works. and We should be doing as much of it as we can, as fast as we can. Just kind of reflecting back, because like you said, it is the 10th anniversary of this. If you were to reflect back a little bit and really just kind of think about, you're a startup founder today. You're trying to get your product off the ground. You're trying to get a large company to pay attention to you. You're trying to you know, do all the things that you guys were, were really doing at that stage. I mean, what is that advice you would give to say, hey, look, you know, it's, it's possible and here's why? It's funny because I actually have a startup going now. My co-founder, Julian Bouget, and I have created called Recharge that's doing wireless charging for electric bikes and scooters because that market that we created with all the bike share stuff is now going electric. And we have developed a system that will work similar to the dock bike shares that were out there. Only now it'll charge electric bikes and scooters. And so we're going through that exercise. And, and I think that fortunately, in, in both of our cases, we've been through the ups and downs of, of being in business. And, and I think we've learned a lot from every one of those lessons to now apply it, even ourselves, to what we're doing. I do serve as an entrepreneur in residence at RPI, my alma mater, and get to advise all kinds of, of new startups that, that are getting going on a wide range of fields. And I'll be honest, I think a lot of it comes back to a comment I made earlier about the personal part of your life that there are smart people out there that can do almost anything you need to do in business for the most part. Incredibly creative people, build a team of people who know all the things you don't know how to do. I mean, that's the, the classic hire people smarter than you are thing. And you have to do that because you're never going to do it all yourself. But the, the other part of it is to find that whatever you consider that work-life balance moment uh, to be in your life and hang on to it for everything you're worth because it's not going to get given to you. It is a difficult thing. I'm not saying I got it right. Um, like I said, I was involved in running two companies and teaching at a university at the same time while we were raising three kids. And could I go back and have that over again in a second? I would absolutely say, you can say that you would try to do it differently. I'm not sure it's really possible. You can't put the genie back in the bottle, but I'll tell a quick personal story to, to highlight that. It was Thanksgiving after we had um, had the successful sale of, of Alta Bike Share. You know, lots gone on. My whole family's here sitting at the dining room table. And I made a comment. I said, look, I know this was a difficult period of time. I understand that. But I think I did the best I could. That's all I said. This was when my, my young son then says to me, Dad, we do that there were times when we couldn't talk to you, you know, and it crushed me. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to hear. He didn't mean it that way. He was, he was actually trying to, he was on my side, you know. Yeah. But, but you know I what he's talking about. I still, almost 10 years later, cannot get that thought out of my head. And, and Isaac, God bless you. You know, you're, you're doing great things in your own life. Uh, all three of our kids are. And it's made, what we did has made this part of our life possible. We wouldn't, you can't separate that out, but it is tough. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone doing anything difficult ever, you know, does not get away with having that thought about, am I doing the right thing? Am I affecting the people around me? One of the best examples is Steve Jobs' deathbed letter, if, if folks haven't read it. Read what he said in his final days. He had more money than anyone in the world. He had done this incredibly successful thing. But the relationships that mattered the most, he had destroyed his wife, his daughter. All the money couldn't cure cancer, could not solve what was, he was going to die. And he's realizing that at the end. And hopefully most of us get to realize that a little sooner. <laughs> Doesn't mean we get it right, but at least we're trying. Yeah, it's true. I, I, it's funny, I had that same conversation with someone today about like the effect that I've had during my journeys and different ups and downs and those tough days, like you come home and it's like, oh, you know, don't, don't talk to Papa now. He's, you know, like, he's not I, a and good honestly, I, I'd ho I had hoped that wouldn't happen. Yeah, right? but you can't like you, you, you live through it and you, 
it's hard not to let it spill over and or them to see it. Like you can't just hide everything. Like if you're you're a passionate person about what you're doing, like it affects you. And and the opposite side of that is is you want to be honest. Yeah. You want your family to. This is what's going on. I also can honestly say that that our kids and my wife were that thing that kept me going. When you asked before about you know what was it? It was it was the I coached youth soccer. I'm a soccer player most of my life, and I was involved in doing that because it was a great thing, and it had no direct connection to the other stuff that I did. I taught at a university because I love to teach. Those, those are joyful things that you do. If you don't keep fitting those things in, the rest of it just becomes unbearable. And the idea that if I'm not focused on it every single second, I will never solve this work-related thing. I'll be honest, of all the things you're asking, lessons learned. I feel now, as I'm working much more on things that I can choose to do than I have to do, that the stuff I do is so much better, that my thought process is better, I'm capable of getting things done, and the Empire State Trail is a great project as an example. I probably would not have been able to help make that project happen if I was busy doing the 60 other things at the same time. You just can't keep spinning plates. You know, at some point, you've got to you know, think about doing things in a, in a different sense of time. It's such an important point, right? Because, I mean, I think especially for first-time founders and or maybe, you know, I'm not just really first-time founders, right? And But it, I think it hits all of us at certain points, even if you've got a lot of experience in this, that just sort of natural reaction to just go deeper. Like things aren't working the way I want them to. So I'm going to go deeper. I'm going to go deeper. I'm going to go deeper. I'm going to add more hours. I'm going to spend more time doing this. And it sounds like really what you're saying, and I think it's just such great advice, is like sometimes you actually kind of need to do the opposite, right? Sometimes it's there. there actually can be at something like work-life balance, even for a founder. And I think that point gets lost. And even in, even in the most difficult moments, I mean, it's, uh, but I, I think that's, there are times when that has to happen. There are times when there is no other alternative to that. And I, I get that I'm an architect by profession. So I've designed buildings. I know what it's like when you've got a major deadline, you've got, there are things that have to happen in time and on sequence. And you know, those things are for real, no different than college students having to finish their, their semester's project on time. Um, you know, I, there are deadlines in life. Not everything can be just, all right, I'm going to go out and go skiing again today, which I honestly do a lot of. It's not as easy as it sounds. And I think that's, I don't think there's ever a way to get it right. I just think that it's important to try. <laughs> I think that'll keep you grounded. Totally. And I think the important part, right, is it's not, it's not every day, right? Am I, sort of other life as, you know, as a venture investor. I mean, I hear this all the time where, you know, you founders will, you'll hear people pitching and things like that. And it will somehow this, this kind of conversation will come up. Right. And there's this, there's this moment of, you know, I'm working 15 hours a day, seven days a week. Great. I'm not putting any money behind you. <laughs> right. Right. Because, because when, when that ends, it's going to end really poorly. Now go tell me, I bet, you know, I had to work 15 hours a day, seven days a week while I was releasing my product or while I was going through this period. Totally get that, right? Like, go deep. You've got to go hard with this. But if that's your source of pride, right, if that's your source of, you know, of, of how you believe you're going to fuel this business, it's going to end and it's going to end poorly. You know, it's going to, it's just, it has to catch up with you, right? It's just not. And especially when like, what we've worked on all these years and collective, we, the, the field of people that I work in is difficult. It involves change. It, it involves constantly having to do things that aren't being done, which is why you end up being successful is you did, you just did something that hasn't been done before, but the constant challenge of that. And on the consulting side of our business, yeah. you're constantly chasing new projects and competitive work. Anybody who's been in the consulting world will tell you if you win 45% of the things you bid on, you're, you're doing really well. And that means you just lost 55% of the time. You know, you've got to be really thick skinned and capable of rolling off. You, know, you have to have some defense mechanisms to, to, to manage that and to realize that it's not going to go great every day. There are I just I heard a, another local founder recently made a comment that she said that being in a startup is the best day you've had and the worst day you've ever had every day at the same time. <laughs> and I just thought that was, you know, and, and here, here I am doing it again. You know, I, I, you don't stop. I mean, no. you know, knowing that and being in it again you know, and in actually a couple of other things I've been involved in recently that 
it's exciting. It's a, it keeps you going. I, I don't think I'll ever stop doing something productive. I, I want to, you know, every single day I want to do something, but I also still want to ski a lot and I want to ride my bike a lot and spend time with my kids. And, you know, I, at least at this point, it's better balanced than maybe it's ever been. You created one of the most iconic brands in the world, <laughs> arguably, right? And you now are going on to do something different. You started to kind of mention this before, walk through recharge and what your latest startup is. Yeah. So while I was in the middle of all that, and, and again, created that iconic brand, team of a thousand people did that. I don't want to take, uh, it's everybody listening to this, please. Is no means just me. I was one of many part of the team. So I get approached by a, a French uh, wind energy physicist at a, at a meeting at a bike share meeting who was, um, right. Yeah. That, these things happen by the way, being open, open to unusual opportunities is a great category, right? You know, First of all, the fact that this guy, Julian Bouget, walks up to me is enough for me to say we should have lunch tomorrow. If he didn't say a thing, I was like, all right, this guy's interesting. I got to talk to this guy and do that. I and mean, those are the kinds of things you have no idea where the conversation. It's the best thing about skiing is you're on the lift. Talk to the person next to you. You know, so he says, look, I think what you're working on is great, but but it's all going to be electric. And I think I have a solution for how to charge the batteries. So this is way before the electric bike boom that we're in right now. Julian and I teamed up and successfully applied for a grant from New York State Energy and ICERTA developed a system that now uses the same wireless charging or a similar wireless charging uh, technology that you use to charge your phone. So now we can charge any battery smaller than a car. So from golf carts and mopeds on down, bikes, scooters, one wheels, longboards, wheelchairs, scooters, name your list, different batteries, different voltages, all charged on the same platform. We have uh, successfully developed a working prototype. Our business model is very similar to if you look at what BikeShare was when it started, stations that people will dock at, only those stations now provide electricity. At least according to McKinsey and other voices in this field around the world, we're looking at a market in the, in the hundreds of billions of dollars coming up. Clearly, people like the idea of they enjoy freedom of movement, which is what a bicycle gives you. If you haven't ridden an e-bike yet or one of the electric scooters, and, and you're not smiling, you got to check oh, your pulse. Super, I mean, this stuff is fun. Super fun. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a couple other aspects to it. Obviously, we have, a, at least in the U.S. right now, and we should talk internationally as well, a major push on electric vehicles, as they're called. But that has been considered almost exclusively to be electric cars. For every car that gets charged, our system could be charging between 100 and 200 bikes and scooters. And so our argument from an equity perspective, from a climate change perspective, mobility, all the other factors, is don't we want to get hundreds of people mobile instead of just one at a time? And then it's really the same conversation that bikes and walking have been about all these years. We are, the, we are definitely the David in the room full of Goliaths. We are trying to create another form of change, but we believe that Recharge uh, is, a, is going to be a powerful solution for communities around the world to have that electric mobility available consistently, successfully, easy to use for us profitably. So is this your new mafia you're building? Oh yeah, that's right. It's a new mafia. Exactly. Wait, we got to go back because yeah. we referenced, e we referenced mafia, that at yeah. the beginning. I got to, we got to remember <laughs> to ask to why we joked with Jeff about being the head of the, uh, the big, well, it's in the John Stewart oh, that's thing. Right. It's yeah, part that's of, right. it's part so of the people, daily show. People will see yeah. the clip, but the, uh, when you were called the head of the, uh, Dorothy Rabinowitz referred to the all powerful bike lobby. And, and you have to bear in mind that her name was Dorothy. And you can imagine the memes the next day about the ruby slippers and the all-powerful. And, you know, it was, uh, I think our, our movements collectively, one of our best moments ever, because we'd always wanted to be powerful, you know. And, and here we were. All of a sudden, the Wall Street Journal just called us all-powerful. It's fantastic. I would love to have any of my businesses called, that's right, the big, you know, big whatever, right? There was big tobacco. There's big, big oil. We've been called worse. But I, I was going to ask you guys if you haven't seen my T-shirt yet, if you wanted to probably yeah, no, talk about it. So wait, I got to wait. Hold on the T-shirt. We're going to get there in a second. I just want to make sure we've got the whole story at Recharge. So so you're going yeah. out. So you're launching this thing. And basically, like, I mean, everybody sees this problem, right? I think this is the problem, at least the way I would characterize it. I Right now, I'm sitting in Livingston, Montana, about 20 minutes south of uh, Bozeman, Montana, where we where we have a home. And you go up to Bozeman. There are scooters. I mean, they're just laying all over the street, right? You wake up on Saturday morning. They right. are absolutely, they're in dumpsters. They're in the middle of the road. They're in a, you know, people's yeah. garbage cans on their front lawns. Like it, it's, it's a total mess, right? It, it seems like that 
is part of the problem that you're able to kind of address here. Is that? Yeah. The big pain point, all those companies, Bird, Lime, Spin, go down your list of companies, Super Pedestrian, Lyft, Uber, that have been in the shared mobility business that went to electrics, all got a lot of money. You know, we had a period of time when there was lots of money available for, for starting new things. Bird, by the way, was the fastest company ever valued at a billion dollars, world's fastest unicorn. I think their stock's at 12 cents today. A big part of the problem, the pain that they ran into was not thinking ahead to a cost-effective way to simply charge the batteries. Uh, what they did was they had people driving around in cars and trucks, swapping batteries, swapping the entire scooter or bike, which tremendous amount of downtime. The safety issues of lithium-ion batteries being plugged and unplugged and stored and driven around in cars and trucks, all of that, all the personnel, all that time has been costing these companies somewhere between 30 and 60% of their operating costs. And it is, it's breaking them. So we can come in now rearrange the way this is done so that stations and locations that things are brought back to are important again, which is valuable for the sponsors. It's valuable for the cities to clear the clutter problem. And it provides a point where we can now charge these things safely and efficiently. And that will make all these companies more profitable. We are brand neutral, which means that our stations would work across any platform. So the, the ones that are, I don't know which brand is uh, providing your system and in Bozeman, but if you go to Austin, Texas, there's multiple scooter operators, Washington, DC, they have multiple companies, none of whom are gonna make that investment themselves because their contracts are short term. Something needs to be in place that functions like a utility, a micro utility, if you will. A couple of good examples are, if you look at the cell phone tower industry, where the companies that put up the towers are not the people that you're using your phone service through. Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile all lease space or use those towers for their equipment, our stations will be doing the same thing, providing for all those other companies to have a common point where they get access to electricity. Unbelievable. All right. So you started a band, right? That's your, that's your shirt, clearly. <laughs> it's a fake it's band. Our, <laughs> because we all wear, we all wear t-shirts of fake bands. What is, what is the t-shirt? <laughs> All right. So you, know, you talk about, you know, b before you were asking about some of the stuff that gets thrown at you and you were asking about lessons learned, I think the John Stewart piece is perfect because it turns out that humor is an incredibly powerful force, especially when things are not going well. I'm sorry I don't have my laptop. I could pull up this email because I keep it on my home screen. It's been there for, for almost 10 years now, the same email. And it starts off by saying, who is the gigantic ass clown moron who just put 40 city bikes in front of my building? You guys suck. And then it keeps going. It's like a whole page that, of just the most horrible insults about what awful people we were and how terrible this idea is. So our corporate counsel, who is one of the best people in the world, he sends this to us. And my gut reaction, and maybe because I'm a Dave Barry, you know, if you know Dave Barry's humor, I'm a, I'm a fan of his. I just shot back, what a great name for a rock band. That's just something Dave Barry actually says. And, and then, of course, on the email chain that followed had to do with who's going to play lead guitar and which one is the actual ass clown, which one is the moron. <laughs> and so, so the back of the shirt I, I can turn around and show you is, is, uh, is all the cities that we launched in and the dates that they launched. So that's, those are our tour dates down <laughs> yeah. the back. The front of the shirt, for those of us watching at home, it's the Jolly Green Giant, and then a character called a genuine ass clown, and then a person in a dunce cap. And it says, you know, giant plus ass clown plus moron equals G-A-M. Uh, the name of the band was the Giant Ass Clown Morons. Um, <laughs> and I made, I made those t-shirts for everyone and we gave them out. And that became one of oh our most sort of shining moments of humor in the face of adversity. But, you know, sometimes you, you just don't know how else to respond. If you can't laugh at this stuff. Oh, man. Uh, you'll I never love know. it. Yeah. That is I like, love it. That, that's like the letter that one clip I saw of this woman getting interviewed saying why is this taking up a parking space in my neighborhood? That's what she actually would have can, said. I mean, can you imagine spending the time to write a letter to someone and starting off by calling them gigantic ass clown morons? I mean, I, first of all, it's funny. I mean, it, I, I think it's, it is comical, but. In, in defense, I mean, almost every text that Peter sends me starts off by calling me a giant ass clown moron. So right? I, yeah. I'm actually pretty used to it, but most people would be offended by it. So. True story. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty big music fan and actually really love live music. And it's one of the great things about living here in Saratoga. We have access to such incredible range of stuff. 
I was at the Saratoga Jazz Festival and I wore this shirt. I haven't worn it that many times, but I wore it to the Jazz Festival. And I had two different people come up to me and want to know when that band was coming on. <laughs> like, oh, are they here today? Uh, right here, man. <laughs> you have all so your so they, They're here, all right. Yeah, <laughs> Closer than you think. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my and Jeff, the, the question that we didn't ask you, because we had talked about this uh, previously, and you don't have to answer this question, but at some day when you actually will will name names, I would love more than nothing else to hear the stories about trying to deal with the New York City government and and try to you reference this a couple times. It's really funny, right? When you when you like you know, when politicians start to get involved in these kind of things, right? And when it moves to their credit, right? And I can't even imagine, I know you're very sensitive about, you know, you don't want to be talking about individual people, things like that, which I totally get. But man, the stories that have to be there behind that are just unbelievable. They, they are very much there. I'm trying to think if any of them are, are capable of being told in polite company. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> and, and look, you also have to realize that those people are under an equal amount of pressure uh, maybe even more so. I'll t I will tell a story, and I, and I think maybe this is a good one because it's um, it answers what you're talking about without being too negative. Mayor Tom Menino of Boston, who rest in peace, was a one of the great 180 degree turns I've ever seen in my life. Was at the beginning of bike share in the sort of moment where everybody's saying what's wrong and all these horrible things that are going on. He made a very public series of comments that were on uh, multiple media outlets that this is the wrong thing for Boston. It is unsafe. People are going to die. Uh, Boston drivers won't have any idea how to deal with any of this stuff, you know. And it was tough, you know. Well, I had met him at a public event previously. If we have another extra minute, I'll tell the rest no, of that no, story. Please. And, you know, after the thing launched and it became this successful thing, he completely turned around and was able to then say, you know, first of all, his first heart attack, he knew his doctors had told him he needed to get healthy. He needed to get fit. He started walking. He started riding what were then called hubway bikes and had all his staff doing that and, and really got it, you know, in a, in a way that was hard. And, you know, sometimes those difficult things that you face from people, they've got their reason why it doesn't make sense. And it, this is a maturity thing. I, I wouldn't have understood this earlier in my career, you know. Uh, you think everybody's out to get you, you know, and you think that you're just up against these massive problems. Well, everybody else has got a reason why they're doing what they're doing, too. And if you can patiently figure out what that thing is. And he really did. And he became a significant ally for us and made major things happen in our direction. So, you know, I think especially if you're the mayor of Boston or New York or Chicago, it's really tough when you're in that position. I think uh, another good example was that Chicago was, it's hard, you don't want to stereotype, you know, people from a certain region, but, you know, it was such a Midwestern approach that Chicago had. We're going through all these problems in New York. They clearly know they're the next one teed up. The mayors are having their own, you know, between Rahm Emanuel in Chicago, Michael Bloomberg in New York, and Tom Benino in Boston, they're having their own little internal conversation, and, and they're trying to see who's doing bigger, and D.C.'s already got their bike share, and the New York and Chicago mayors were always standing up at events saying, we've got the biggest bike share in North America, you know, and that was only because they'd launched a few more stations the week before. They're, it was a friendly and, and fun kind of conversation. Chicago, knowing all the problems that were going on with the software and the post-Hurricane Sandy stuff, Rahm Emanuel's folks came to us and said, instead of launching 300 stations on the first day, which is what New York City insisted on doing, all or not, it's all in, we got to do the whole thing. Chicago said, well, if we did 50 a week for six weeks, we could do six different ribbon cuttings with the mayor. <laughs> the mayor loved that yeah. idea, which gave us time to roll stuff out and sort out some of the challenges and deal with some of the things that were going on. And it was just such a very Chicago way of handling a complex problem and turning it into an asset. You know, on the other hand, New York went big and it worked. And <laughs> you can't complain about that. either. No. And now you're doing it again. I mean, now, you know, do you see a lot of those similarities today in launching or is it the past? Just a little yeah, there there are similar David and Goliath problems. We're up against the, the lobbying power of companies like Tesla. The reason, you know, multi-billion dollar investments being made with public sector funding to subsidize electric cars is they've got better lobbying power than we're ever going to have. You know, so we're up against that. At the same time, electric bikes have outsold electric cars, even without there being subsidies for them. They, the sales numbers, and when you look at Europe, you look at Asia, Africa, this is happening all over the world right now. So we can see that trend. We can't quite yet get to the point where there's an equal playing field and, and we're still, you know, the field is definitely tilted, uh, not in our favor right now. 
but we're getting there. And we actually just saw a report from U.S. Department of Transportation just literally yesterday calling for new uh, support for electric vehicles to include anything with a motor and wheels. That's what we've been saying from day one. We're still pushing rocks up hills. We're not there yet. You know, when people ask me what I see the scale potential this is, and you look at the, the most bike-friendly cities in the world, places like Amsterdam, Copenhagen, they're at near 50% of all trips. And that's a big number when you think about every time somebody goes to school, to the store, to a job, to a concert, to whatever they're going in their neighborhood or in their city, and they're doing it by bike, we're at like one and a half percent, you know, even in New York with city bike. So the growth that's out there is orders of magnitude. And, and that's both the plus for us. That's what we see going forward. But it's also we've got to overcome a lot of those challenges and realize that, you know, not everyone is going to be able to drive an electric car. And that doesn't solve all the environmental and climate change problems, even if they did. In order to drive an electric car, you pretty much have to have a house and a place to park it and charge it. The electric bikes and scooters are just so much more equitable. Any community, you know, and we're working with a lot of communities that this might be one of the few innovative mobility things that's going to happen. Places like East Buffalo and New York City public housing and places where this is going to provide a really great solution for a lot of people that otherwise are going to be left behind by these advances. And you know, it gets back to that central mission that we talked about earlier. That's, I guess that's what makes me tick. I mean, I, I still think there's several more careers out there in the future. There's always something new and interesting to do. I've got another book that I've got written and I haven't done much with uh, since then. I've got another one in my head already. You know, it's just, it's never ending. There's always stuff that, that you can keep doing as long as you can keep doing it. That's what makes it fun. Well, on that note, Jeff, speaking of fun, this was super fun to have you on today. And, you know, these stories are just amazing. And congratulations on the success. And look forward to watching the story of Recharge continue to build. It's just an unbelievable accomplishment. So many valuable lessons in here for people that are just getting going today and really, really dealing with adversity and dealing with those challenges of startups and dealing with the own their own personal elements of the founder's journey. There's just so much of that thing is super relevant here. So really appreciate you being on with us today. And thanks for communicating these stories. It really, it's such a help. And everyone else that gets to listen to everyone else's stories helps all of us move forward. So thanks for that. Absolutely. Peter, you're muted if you're talking. The, Peter, I don't know. The one rule when you're a podcast host, there's, there's actually only one thing you actually need to remember. Don't keep yourself on mute. That's right. (laughs) No, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. It was awesome. I'll see you on the trail. All right. Yes, hopefully soon. All All right. Thanks, guys. See you.